The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Good afternoon. We hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. Thank you for joining us today for this webinar regarding the impact of COVID-19 on middle market firms. It's been a year like no other in our lifetime. Every person, every business, our country, people around the world have been impacted by COVID-19. And that's really the purpose of this webinar, to provide context and perspective and some key takeaways for executives to consider as they plan for the future beyond 2020. Before I go into the discussion, I want to take a moment to introduce myself as well as panelists. My name is Dima Vasa. I'm a senior advisor at Oberon Securities. I have over 10 years of entrepreneurial experience, operator experience, and running business unit of $45 million for one of the largest market research firms. In addition, executive at IBM. I currently have my own advisory services firm, Infinity Square Ventures, and I am also obviously a senior advisor at Oberon Securities. Nicole Schmidt is our other panelist today. She is the managing partner and co-founder of Oberon Securities and a member of Oberon's management team, bringing more than 22 years of entrepreneurial experience and leadership to the firm. She spearheads Oberon's consumer and retail group and is actively involved in the firm's TMT practice. Prior to co-founding Oberon in 2001, Nicole was a partner at a software incubator. In addition, she spent eight years as a senior equity analyst on both the buy side and sell side, covering a range of technologies. And Chuck Mitchell, he is the executive director at the conference board. Since joining the conference board in 1997 as the head of publishing, he has authored dozens of reports on business and economic issues, including the most recent Beyond Technology, Building a New Organizational Culture to Succeed in an Era of Digital Transformation and Inclusion, Plus innovation, leveraging diversity of thought to generate business growth. Chuck also co-authors the conference board's annual CEO challenge report. He recently completed two and a half year assignment in Asia Pacific based in Hong Kong. I wanted to give people a perspective of how we got here. In the spring of 2020, obviously we were all dealing with COVID, the impact, and all of us were calling each other and saying, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? And we decided to team up together to be able to find real content and input from C-level executives and get their perspectives as it relates to COVID-19 and the impact. We created a report of key findings, and we partnered with Paradigm, which is our data collection partner. If you have not received that report, please email me. We're happy to share those results and talk about it. Since time has passed, COVID-19 is still here. We're all dealing with the impact of COVID-19. And we said, okay, let's take this beyond kind of a short-term view and start giving business leaders, C-level executives, something to think about as they're thinking about planning beyond 2020, because obviously this is a longer road that more than we all had anticipated. And so, hence, we pulled our research 
our resources and our perspectives to bring to you some key takeaways, food for thought, and something to consider. So let's start. First key takeaway, C-level executives see an opportunity to transform their organizations into digitally driven enterprises that will make them leaner and more agile. I think this is interesting, Nicole and Chuck. We saw this in the primary research where one of the things that C-level executives almost kind of like hit themselves if they haven't done it already is to be more digitally agile. It's interesting, though, because, you know, we see the strongest of companies right now having at least lost about 10 to 15% of revenue. And so when you think about this mandate of being digitally driven, it requires the acquisition of new skills. It requires investment. And so I wonder, you know, how does the C-level executive manage those trade-offs? And I'll start with you, Chuck, in terms of that question. Like, is this really something that they're going to invest in in the future? Would they actually go out and raise capital? What's your perspective? Yeah, a lot of our members here at the conference board, I think it's important to point out that this was a trend that was already underway pre-COVID. What what COVID has done is just accelerated the movement towards it. And, you know, when it comes to that balancing act, and that's one of the issues that we hear a lot from CEOs is not sacrificing the long term for the short term. And it really requires getting the board on board, and it really requires you know, a thoughtful strategic plan and not giving up that long-term view for the short term. And again, you know, with changes in consumer behaviors that we're seeing, that COVID has really accelerated the urgency with remote work, the urgency to digitally transform the organization. So it's a challenge, but it's one that has to be met and to to emerge post-COVID as a competitive entity. And Nicole, we're seeing some of that on Oberon's side, right, in terms of companies saying they need to potentially raise some capital, think of creative solutions as it relates to investment. Can you share a little bit of your perspective on that? A lot of these trends had started pre-COVID. You know, every company out there has a network, has technology infrastructure, probably dating back at least 20 years. But what's different today is that because people are no longer centralized in a headquarters or in a series of offices, they're now forced to collaborate through technology. And so the knee-jerk has been to embrace, and rightfully so, things like, you know, platforms like Zoom and its competitors and Citrix systems, which allow people to process from wherever they are, i.e. remotely. What I think a lot of companies now are sort of thinking is that, well, maybe the physical space is not as important as they historically thought. And the metric there is going to become productivity. And I personally believe people are not as productive when they are physically and socially distanced as they are when they're in under the same roof. Getting to your question, look, most of the middle market companies that we canvassed or surveyed indicated that they only had about seven months worth of cash on their books. You know, as they continue to go down the road and generate revenues, albeit lower than what they historically generated, you know, they are definitely evaluating their options. They're definitely coming to market where they need to secure facilities, either credit facilities or seek an equity partner. And we definitely are seeing that. We are also seeing the larger companies, which have much more of a war chest in terms of cash, you know, looking across their universe to see who they might intend to acquire. So uh, we think this is actually fertile ground for, you know, companies who help 
these companies access the capital markets. I think, Nicole, I think those are really good points. One aspect that I think it's important to point out is that it's not simply about digital transformation. It's not simply about the technology, right? And the challenge in a COVID era with workers scattered across, it's cultural. It's about cultural transformation within the organization. And being remote really compounds the difficulty of transforming that culture internally. And that is, I think it's probably even a bigger challenge than resources for mm-hmm. most organizations. I also think it speaks to the leadership. To your point, the culture that's created by the leadership, is it command and control where they need to see everybody in person or is it more of a flatter organization and the way they collaborate is different, you know, when everybody's spread across multiple locations. But we're going to come to that in a little bit more detail as we go through this. C-suite executives see a long-term strategic opportunity to cut costs. I've had a lot of, you know, kind of whispering in the ear from C-level executives saying, you know, not in a malicious way, but in an opportunity to say, due to COVID, I got to cut these costs. I got to change the organization, rightly or wrongly. They might not, they see the opportunity. It's not so much about short-term, it's more about long-term. Where do you guys see the operational structure really being impacted here? Do you see specific functions changing? Where do you think the impact is going to be here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you get to the function level in a digitally transformed organization, it's sure that the artificial intelligence, robotic process, all starts to replace routine tasks. And so function is really impacted by changing what jobs they do and how they interact with the technology, right? So it's going to be smaller, it's going to be leaner. And, you know, that's part of that long-term strategic opportunity to cut costs. Also, I think, as Nicole mentioned, to the physical workplaces, right? How they come back, how they, you know, in what form, in what size, all of that is, you know, part of that strategic opportunity. And along with uh, what we're doing now with Zoom, right? The business travel, I think, is, is something that we hear from our members that is not going to come back as robust as it was pre-COVID. I would also jump in. I, I think here that, you know, business travel has been cut. You know, it's virtually non-existent. And I don't want to use the word unprecedented, (laughs) but, you know, you can certainly see what's happened to the travel industry, the airlines on a daily basis, right? So people aren't getting on planes or they're certainly not eager to get on planes for fear of catching this uh, virus. So, you know, at the moment, those budgets are way down. I think marketing budgets are way down. I think, you know, they're cutting real estate where they don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I mean, you know, another cost-cutting strategy that, that seems to emerge, at least in the uh, views of CEOs that responded to our survey, is this is a movement towards more, and it feeds into the next point, into uh, more remote, not re- more uh, contingent and flexible workforces, fewer full-timers, if you will, right? And, you know, that's one of the trends that I think C-suite and CEOs are eyeing as that long-term opportunity. It's interesting. I think one of the major, we've discussed this in points one and two, but now three is also organizations are recalibrating when, where, and how work gets done. Does this point to more empowerment of the worker in the sense that they have more freedom in terms of what type of work they're going to do? And how does that play into being able to manage a workforce? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly that's one of the key parts of a digitally transformed organization is pushing decision-making down lower into the organization. 
teams need to be uh, certainly aligned with the overall business strategy, but autonomous in that sense. And from that point of view, we talk about empowering workers. Yeah, I think absolutely is going to be one of the big changes in the workplace that we see going forward. The whole notion of inclusion in order to drive digital transformation and to drive teamwork is so important. And, you know, and again, that's part of the cultural change that many organizations need to undergo to become a fully digitally transformed company. Yeah, and I think if you talk to people in the tech sector where there's a lot of IT outsourcing already going on, what you find is that has been somewhat cultural for at least a decade, if not more, where you have, you know, IT services professionals, whether they're software or hardware specialists or cybersecurity specialists, and, you know, they work from Colorado. They'll work from the mountaintop in Colorado. Uh, they'll borrow into a network, and they will process. Right. Yeah, I mean, the digital natives, right? I mean, you know, those type of firms that you, that you mentioned are obviously ahead of the game because that's how they were born, right, with that culture. It's the digital immigrants. It's the you know, traditional manufacturer, if you will, that is really going to have the heavy lift of changing the culture, unlike the digital natives, right? So, you know, I think that that's, they face a much grander, greater challenge, deeper challenge than those who were born that way. Yeah, I also think it speaks to leadership. I go back to that. Like, if you start your career in one model of operating, and then all of a sudden there's this transformation, which COVID is accelerating, right? As a leader, you have to really take stock in terms of saying, how do I have to change to adjust to this? And it's kind of unproven territory in many respects for leaders when, you know, they have people in the office, they can do the walk-by, the water cooler. All of a sudden that shifts, and, you know, you don't have eyes on on people and it's a different way of leading. Yeah, I mean very much so. And and you know that is one of the so you know this notion around digitization, right? As opposed to digital transformation, digitization really being applying uh, technologies to existing processes. And that doesn't require much of a cultural change at all or even a change in leadership style. It when you start to transform that organization across the enterprise, that's where you need a, le- a change in leadership style. And you need that change in in organizational structure. And typically, we've had time to adjust to that, you know, slowly. Not Maybe not slowly, but, you know, over time. And this has just accelerated that trend. Force people to be resilient. Correct. Force executives to be, and, you know, their workforce to be much more Mm -hmm. resilient and much more flexible. Very true. Yeah, very much a personal challenge, too. And it is up to the organizations to help their employees build that resilience, right? This You're talking about changes in leadership style, you know, about the empathy. I mean, it's more important now than ever to check in with the remote staff rather than check on the remote staff. That is, and it's difficult for a lot of individuals who are have been raised, who have been leading in a certain way that is now uh, just isn't going to cut it. So consumer buying behaviors will change. They've already changed. I'm sure personally we can all relate to the things that we immediately shifted as a result of COVID. Nicole, from your perspective, you know, being focused on consumer retail, like what do you think the major trends that will actually stick? And I'm not even going to say when we get back to normal, when we get to the new normal. Well, what are the trends that you see from a consumer buying behavior that will maintain or even accelerate? 
And I think this goes back to something Chuck said earlier, right? There were a lot of these trends were in existence. You know, Amazon, you know, started as a bookseller and now it's the department store for everything. Their business was already uh, taking market share from traditional bricks and mortar players. But what this did was create the perfect backdrop for them to excel, for them to accelerate their market penetration and their land grab. You know, the same thing. And look, I mean, you know, it goes back. I mean, in a way, we've, we've come back a hundred years to the Sears catalog where you want, went to one catalog for everything. I mean, Amazon has sort of replicated that model digitally. And I think, you know, they've made it so consumer friendly and so easy that you don't have to leave your house at the, at one click. You know, you can get everything from a hair dryer to, you know, auto supplies to art supplies to dog food. So, you know, he's catered to everybody's whims and everybody's, you know, immediate gratification, feeding everybody's immediate gratification needs. And especially with, you know, delivery that used to be next day or two days stuff you can get today. And then he He's added to that the whole, you know, staples, groceries, etc. So, and he's and looking at ph- the pharmaceutical business. So, you know, I mean, it's clear that COVID and the quarantine have just given that a fuel injection. And to with the streaming media services, whether it's Amazon Prime or Netflix or Hulu or any of those uh, players, right? You know, people are not going out and convening in movie theaters and theaters. And so, you know, being fed media at home, you know, where they feel comfortable digesting it is, is also accelerated. And I think those behaviors, while they will start to change, I think that there's a certain amount of market penetration and land grab that these companies aren't giving back so quickly. I think it's going to cause a reset in retail store cost structure. I think Longer term, I think it will give rise again, if there is a reset in pricing, to uh, the creation of mom and pops, which we lost in favor of, you know, very large, you know, white boxes and banks and huge chains. And so I think today it's about innovation and it's about being nimble. And I think it's about creating stuff that's proprietary. And I think, you know, that the landlords will start to meet those people at a level at which they can function and succeed and prosper. So, you know, so I think it will start a new cycle in terms of that. But, you know, Amazon's not going to see too much of its... uh, They're not going to give up so quickly. Landmass to to other players. That's clear. You know, I think there's a couple of danger signs, if you will, right, or warning signs that, you know, the notion because of the recession that we're in, the consolidation with industries and consolidation generally leads to less consumer choice. You know, one of the notions that, you know, we all need to look out for. And I think the other thing that organizations, I think, need to realize, too, is, is you know, as this consumer buying behavior changes and, and especially about the digital experience being online, purchasing online, doing your customer service online, that that bar now becomes really high because consumers are looking at not that they're comparing your digital experience or the digital experience that you offer them with the very best digital experience that they've had online. It's not your traditional competitors anymore. You're competing as an organization with the best that's out there. And it really raises the bar and the expectations are, you know, we see in our consumer work, we see the, the consumer expectations for that quality of service just escalating. Yeah. 
teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Well, and I think the other trend that we've all like just out of, you know, the shift of COVID is a cashless society where we don't use cash. We're using Venmo. We're using PayPal. We're using credit cards. We're just not transacting. And that's really as a result of safety and security for many of us. And I wonder, again, that's another acceleration. I wonder if we go back to using cash as much as we used to. Corporate missions are being redefined. It's so interesting. We did some research a few years ago about millennials and this concept of authenticity and being transparent. And, you know, when we talked about it in preparation for this, it's almost as if corporations are now kind of adopting the same philosophy as it relates to being representative of their employees to ensure that employees are engaged. They feel that they're represented, the companies represent a higher purpose. I wonder, is this, you know, what's the financial benefit of this? Is this a marketing concept or is this truly something that's long lasting and it's driven intrinsically within an organization? Chuck, I'll let you start with that one. Sure. I mean, it better not be a marketing because then it lacks the authenticity, right? That's one of the scary parts. But, yeah, this whole notion of managing and committing to lead a company for the benefit of all stakeholders, you know, is certainly gaining traction across all size companies, the notion of being purpose-driven. And it equates to higher engagement, and higher engagement equates to higher productivity and better interactions externally with customers. So, you know, it's been long in coming. And again, you know, I think, you know, this COVID, the, the pandemic has really, again, accelerated that movement. I mean, we see companies that actually declare themselves as purpose-driven uh, has gone up about fivefold in about six, seven years, right, with their SEC filing. So, it's more than a marketing ploy for sure. And I think newer generations in the workplace are kind of expecting that their companies treat them that way and that they matter and that their voices are heard. And, you know, this is, again, something that COVID is accelerating, I think, because a company that's authentic will care about the well-being, not only the physical, but mental well-being of its employees. I mean, that now becomes a big HR issue. And uh, and it's all for the good, if I can edit I think it will sort of trigger, in a way, a new industry. It will, you know, look, the environment, right, it's a very big topic. Pandemics now is top of mind. I think this will give rise to new types of industries that are uh, geared toward, our, you know, cleaning up our environment. You know, leaving, like, you know, replacing the fossil fuel industry. I mean, and I think the millennials who, you know, I think Chuck was alluding to who are, you know, the sort of the next generation ready to inherit the mantle here, you know, have grown up with a backdrop of forest fires and floods and hurricanes, you know, and now COVID. And I think, you know, they attribute a lot of this to 
you know, maybe a poorly managed, you know, business environment, which was allowed to choose money at the expense, potentially, of, you know, the environment it was operating in. And so I think that I think it's a shift. And I think you'll see, you know, more and more uh, green companies come into existence and you will see the more greeting of existing companies. But it isn't just that. I think it extends well beyond that. And I think millennials clearly, you know, indicate that they want to uh, connect with brands and connect with their companies. And I think that is moving us, you know, well down the road or continuum in that, in the direction of embracing sort of a, a more ethical code, you know, on the business side. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one of the key movers, you know, obviously it's consumer driven, it's employee driven, but I think one of the key movers on this is that it's investor driven, right? I mean, they're now seeing evaluations of companies that include intangibles like their ethics or their employee engagement, those kind of metrics that were never really looked at to gear a company's sustainability. And by sustainability, I mean, you know, will it be around in 50 years? Right. And, and those metrics are, those metrics are starting to be looked at and you have to deliver against them. And that fuels this change in corporate mission. Do you think that inevitably I can't help but think that the actual financial results will be different as well? Right. I mean, people might be willing to change their perspective on profitability, right? Are they willing to accept a shift in, you know, obviously people will accept an upward trend, but a downward trend in profitability that's got to be impacted here in some way, shape or form. I don't know that people are ready to accept that just yet. I agree. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out because I think that it's a game of trade-offs. Societies will invest more in social safety nets and pay more attention to public health issues. You know, from our perspective, I think we looked at this and said, we don't want to be here again. Companies do not want to be here again. They want to be able to understand what's happening in the future. They can then react accordingly. It feels as if people are taking things into their own hands to be able to understand what's coming in the future versus relying on central agencies or organizations to be able to plan and predict what's going to happen in the future. How do you think the relationships between these central agencies and private sector will be? Will we all be duplicating the same amount of work to understand what's happening in our world, our communities, our, our countries? Chuck, I'll, I'll have you start that one. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, again, a lot of our research points to the rising expectations of customers, consumers, employees for organizations to take stand on social issues. I mean, it can be a tightrope to walk. But the expectations there are, are rising, right? So that it's up to the corporation. And this goes back to a little bit of that purpose-driven notion, too, that they can be agents for change. And, you know, I think what's interesting is when we asked in our survey of, of that specific question about investing in social safety nets and public health issues, the geographic split was really interesting. Now, globally, uh, you know, about 60, almost two-thirds uh, of CEOs globally thought this was a highly likely outcome, a long-term outcome of the pandemic. That, you know, two-thirds globally, but that number in the United States was about 40-some percent, in the mid-40s. China was 75%. So, you know, that it's the social systems that you work under and the expectations are different. But, yeah, there's an interesting geographic split about that. And we were, I, I guess, not surprised. I mean, that the numbers are relatively low in the U.S. at, at this point in time compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think some of that is because there's a fair amount of confusion 
about what is a social safety net and what is not and who's availing themselves to that and who is not. And, you know, and I think some of that needs to be clarified and that comes with education. Globally, almost half the CEOs believe the pandemic will leave behind a less globalized economic environment. And this has big implications in terms of supply chain and just general outsourcing, right? I mean, you know, there's companies that have hybrid models where they have a mix of, you know, U.S. resources, offshore resources to have strong financial performance. And so with this trend happening, is this going to change the ability for, and I'll be specific about this for now, U.S. companies to compete? And I'll start with you, Nicole, on this one. Yeah, so I think a couple of things. I think that in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that we outsourced most of our manufacturing. And, you know, we outsourced most of it to China and neighboring Southeast Asian countries. You know, pharmaceutical companies went out. The automotive parts companies went out. The apparel and tangential industries went out. They all, you know, relocated their manufacturing or outsourced it because it was much cheaper. And they enjoyed the profitability because their margins improved during that period. That was, you know, then China industrialized and China became a lot more expensive to manufacture than when it was, you know, when they first started there. So, you know, now, you know, enter COVID, right? And and the quarantine and the upset of uh, supply chains. And, you know, many, many of us couldn't get toilet paper. Many of us couldn't get auto parts. Many of us, you know, uh, waited for drug prescriptions to be filled. So, you know, some of us, you know, where the drug prescriptions were a necessity, not a nice to have, right? So I think that what we have seen is that, you know, CEOs and CFOs and other C-suite executives understand that that's a major problem going forward and that some of this just-in-time, you know, delivery systems that were put in place may not be that productive. And so they're revisiting this, and there are a lot of American businesses that are reevaluating whether they want to leave their production in China, if so, how much, and, you know, are looking at bringing it to either to North America, i.e. Canada or Mexico, or potentially, you know, or here, or potentially putting it in South America somewhere. So I think it's created very real issues, and I think it's going to cause a sea change, and it may even be seismic, but I don't think it's going to go – I think it'll move, but I don't know how quickly it will move. But it's definitely on the – high on the list of, you know, issues that are being grappled with on the manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. I think that the whole notion of de-risking supply chains onshore, nearshore, and that's is kind of an offshoot of the technology that allows that wage arbitrage that was so such a driver for supply chains earlier on, right? I mean, you can produce with robots what, you know, when you look at productivity of a Chinese worker, it's way low compared to what a U.S. worker or European worker does, right? And, and so you start to lose that wage arbitrage, right? But, you know, I think it's a trend that, you know, the onshoring and nearshoring, that it was a trend that we had seen already emerging. A lot of this has to do with uh, disruption in global trade 
and movement towards a bilateral type agreements. But, you know, one of the things that always pops up in our research, and I know if you see it too, Nicole, but, you know, consumers say, yes, they want sustainable products. Yes, you know, we want to buy American, but they're not willing yet to pay for it, right? And that's until that, cons- maybe that's one of the consumer buying behaviors that we mentioned or that will change, right? But right now it's, yeah, I want it, but I'm not ready to pay for it. Uh, I think that's true on the commodity side. I don't think that's true on the, you know, higher end, you know, if you want to call it mastige, prestige side of the equation. You know, but I think, you know, where it comes to critical product, I think people are willing to pay up and not argue about it. So, you know, about this question of globalization, I don't, you know, the Pandora's box is open on that. I don't know how, you know, you don't really roll that back. I think, you know, that's a question of, you know, maybe countries become a little bit more internal facing. But, you know, I think it may be that they move out of China and move to Sri Lanka, continue to move over to Vietnam, Cambodia, India, you know, so, you know, I'm not convinced that we're going to become an, an isolationist economy, you know, or an isolated economy. And I'm not convinced any of the Asian economies, I think it's too interrelated. And I don't think it's so easy to pull the plug on this stuff. Yeah. And, and there is a big movement in Southeast Asia, certainly to delink a little bit with China on that supply chain. And, you know, you look at an organization like ASEAN, and their new economic agreements that are really working towards more regional autonomy and less reliance on China. Yeah, it all speaks to agility and flexibility, right? As the global environment changes, as country relationships are vary depending on leadership, companies need the flexibility to adjust and shift in the appropriate geographies to maintain, you know, their supply chain and delivery systems. Yeah, and, you know, during the pandemic, I mean, just before the pandemic, right, I mean, one of the biggest barriers to growth for U.S. companies was finding talent, right? And, you know, that's, you know, there's a danger that companies will use recession as a retention strategy. That's never a good idea, right? But, yeah, I mean, if we do go back to robust, more robust growth than we had pre-pandemic and the talent issue, the demographics of countries will start to come into play as to as to what you can make and what you can grow locally. And, you know, there's different challenges down the road. And right now it's a very different world, but it may be different again soon in a five to ten year time. Yeah, so I want to shift a little bit. It's a good segue. These are, obviously, there's so many other topics that were on this list, and we down-selected to these core takeaways for folks that are listening. The burning question for many is, what does recovery look like? We know when we did our research together, you know, most CEOs realized that this was a long-term impact. Companies that were in business for a longer period of time probably were more realistic about how long it is versus smaller companies who, you know, were less, they thought it was a shorter time for recovery. But, you know, this is the $50 million question, maybe even more than that. The recovery, not just in the U.S., but among C-level, among C-suites, what they think the shape of recovery looks like by each of the geographies. And you explained this to me in terms of the different shapes, because I was going to say, which letter is it this time that we're talking about? But maybe you could walk us through this a little bit in terms of the finding here. 
Yeah, and, and I will say this was in June, right? And I think you would probably see a much more consensus around what we term a W-shaped recovery, right? So that's when the virus remains out of control, lockdowns come back. So you get this W-shape, this up and down, boom and bust, if you will, right? For lack of a better term, type recovery. But, you know, and again, you know, a U-shaped recovery was looking really at a uh, fairly robust recovery in the first quarter of of 2021 with it starting in fourth quarter. You know, again, with maybe the exception of China and maybe to a lesser extent Japan, the virus is really going to dictate the speed of the recovery and it hasn't been managed well. Even the notion of a U-shaped recovery, which would be a pretty robust rebound, is probably fading, right? So, and, you know, the L-shaped is, you know, some people are calling it a swoosh. It depends on, again, on the speed of the recovery and how the virus is managed. But, you know, you're looking at 2021 and beyond for any kind of return to meaningful growth, right? And, you know, even the, the Nike swoosh, the, that notion may be a little more optimistic than than an L-shaped, which is really kind of a flat, very little uh, growth at all out for a year or so. And, and, and you know, we're interesting and we're seeing in the U.S. the revenue recoveries that American U.S. CEOs actually in their time frame have their own firm's revenue recovery to pre-pandemic levels in the second half of 2021 and beyond. So they're more pessimistic, interestingly, about that than CEOs elsewhere in Europe, Japan, China. You know, the, the virus is dictating the timing of the recoveries. No question. But I would say, you know, a lot of executives that I speak to and that, you know, have said, Look, we understand the environment we're working in and we're pushing ahead and we're pushing ahead, you know, within the confines of doing the right things for our employees and doing the right things for our business, but we're pushing ahead nonetheless. You know, it's a new environment and we have to adapt to it and move forward. And they are. And yes, you know, revenues may be down for everybody but the FANG companies, but, you know, a tough environment. And I think that there is a, but a differentiated situation than you had in the recession between 2008 and 2013. I think now everybody sort of has this feeling, a collective feeling almost that, you know, this is nobody's fault. Nobody caused this meltdown. You know, we find ourselves in a pandemic. And so you're not seeing this blame game. And I think whereas in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, there was rancor, tremendous rancor. Um, and, you know, pointed at numerous industries, including the finance industry. And, you know, and probably rightfully so, because, you know, the finance industry nearly caused the entire economic meltdown of this country. And so I think, you know, there was, you know, people wanted that retribution, people wanted, and I think you have a very different mindset and different backdrop here, which is helpful. And I think it will be helpful in terms of the recovery. You know, sort of like everybody's in the same leaky boat. I agree. I mean, you know, in 2008, 2009, the system was broke, right? But in this case, you know, the government stimulus, when you look at U.S. savings rates, right? I mean, you know, surprised that they've gone up considerably, right? At household income at all, almost at virtually at all levels. And I think there is this notion that there's a lot of postponement of purchase, pent up demand, and just our Yesterday of the U.S. consumer confidence showed a really interesting uptick intent to purchase big ticket items like appliances intent. So, you know, there is that possibility that the therapeutics come into play, the vaccine that really works and is distributed and people have faith in and use it, that there's a pent up demand that could fuel a much, you know, 
that U-shaped recovery that people were expecting. Look, I think this, I think it's a good point, and I think there's been a reevaluation for many people of quality of life. Right, you know, not being tethered to a physical office space, being in quarantine. You know, for a lot of people, they've reevaluated their life, their lifestyle, how they, where they want to live, and I think businesses they're paying close attention to that. You know, or business should be paying close attention to that. And you know, you can see spikes in housing, you know, suburban the housing market and so forth. So I think you know, clients purchases, I think all of that follows is, you know, people increasingly, you know, trade the suburbs for the cities. Now, you know, whether that reverses itself in a couple of years, we'll see. And I, unlike some other people, don't think the cities are dead far from it. But I think, you know, there's been a knee-jerk reaction to what's gone on and being too close to people in, you know, cities with tight quarters. Um, and I also think some people just were tethered to the cities that didn't really want to be, and now they don't have to be. Yep. I think, Nicole, you mentioned this. You know, I think people are resilient. I think businesses are resilient. And, you know, we went from this place of let's wait and see to now let's figure it out because there are solutions and there's creativity. And, you know, that's defined so much of business today. Thank you, Chuck and Nicole. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Abby. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you, Seema. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.